And if you would take your Bible this morning, congregation, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now we'll continue our series, making our way section by section through this epistle. We come this morning to the section uh, that includes verses 11 through 14 of chapter 1. For a bit of background context, uh, we'll begin reading at verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In your pew Bible, you can find this uh, on page 1343. As we turn there, we are reminded that we have the very Word of God itself given by inspiration, a Word that is authoritative for our doctrine and for our life, and so we receive it with humility and gratitude. Ephesians 1, beginning this morning at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And in the words of our text this morning, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of our Lord, uh, we hear sometimes financial experts talk about generational wealth, uh, about the creation of generational wealth. That is, that uh, one generation uh, obtains enough financial benefit, that they have something to pass on to the following generation. And then if that generation is wise and good stewards, uh, they might even increase that generational wealth so that the third generation receives an even greater inheritance. And if you think about that, the prospect of receiving an inheritance, of receiving generational wealth, Uh, there ought to be a certain appreciation, a certain thankfulness, uh, a certain humble attitude uh, that my forefathers, of course by God's good providence, uh, but also as that providence works itself out in their work ethic uh, and in their uh, stewardliness, would give to me Generational wealth? Well, you can take that basic concept and multiply it an infinite amount of degrees. And that's something of what the Apostle Paul is referring to in our passage. A generational wealth that not simply is traced back one or two generations, but traces itself all the way back into eternity. And there before time, there before creation, 
there before anything outside of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed, there was the will of God. And the will of God included this aspect that God would bless that God would bless with His grace and with His mercy those whom He chose to bless with spiritual wealth beyond any comparison, with an inheritance, not just of gold or silver, not of land or of property, not of stocks or of bonds, but with a spiritual inheritance that includes all of the blessings of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins, eternal life, fellowship with God. And now I ask you from the outset, what is the only logical response to such a reality? Praise. Praise and glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit And so I ask you, as I ask also myself this morning, as you sit here in the midst of the congregation of the people of God in this church, is your heart overflowing with a good theme? To refer to the psalmist in Psalm 45, is your heart overflowing with a good theme of gratitude, of praise, of thankfulness to God? As you reflect upon this wonderful reality that we have an inheritance We want to look at this passage of Scripture with this theme this morning, a doxology to God for the spiritual blessing of inheritance. And as we seek to unfold that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the source of the inheritance, secondly, the reception of the inheritance, and then thirdly, the purpose of the inheritance. So our theme, a doxology or a expression of praise, of thankfulness to God for the spiritual blessing of inheritance. We'll notice the source, the reception, and the purpose. We just want to identify, first of all, this word that is mentioned in verse 11. You notice, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. This word inheritance is very prominent within Scripture and very prominent within this section, and it refers not to the gifting of money, not the gifting of real estate, not the gifting of some type of stock portfolio, but rather the reality that the Lord God is pleased to take certain people and make them His own, to bring those people into fellowship, into a fellowship of favor, into this life-giving, life-experiencing relationship, as Jesus Christ mentions in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you. And that's why when you read Exodus 20 or when you hear Exodus 20, as we begin another new week in the house of the Lord, the, the words that come to us, the Lord comes and He says, I am the Lord your God. That's the idea, that's the concept of this inheritance, that the Lord has taken us as His own people to dwell with us, that we might dwell with Him, that we might walk in fellowship with Him. And included in that is the gifting of every necessary and every possible spiritual blessing. And time does not allow us to go through all of the blessings that are included, but we think of a few, the blessing of the provision of a Savior, 
the blessing of the forgiveness of sins freely by the grace and the mercy of our God, the blessing of justification, uh, of being legally, judicially declared right based upon the imputation of the work of Christ, the blessing of sanctification, the blessing of a certain glorification. All of these blessings are included in this inheritance. And notice what the Apostle Paul says. And if we really begin to understand something of the depths of what is being communicated, uh, this, this would really move us, congregation, to humility and also to confidence and a humble confidence that would exuberate praise and thanksgiving. You might say this, all of our worldly, all of our earthly cares and concerns, all of our trials and tribulations, all of the reality of life here in this fallen world would be set into its proper context if we could grasp this truth. In Him we have an inheritance. Oh, you may be the poorest person in the world, financially, socially, but if you are a Christian, then you are the richest person in the world. In Him we have an inheritance. Reflect upon that truth as you sing your songs, as you present your prayers, as you give your tithes and your offerings, as you interact one with another as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance. But how did we get that inheritance? The source of the inheritance is by way of the sovereign will of God and the sovereign power of God. And we hope that those sub-points underneath the first point put all of the emphasis upon God, because we believe if you read verse 11, 12, 13, and 14, yes, the, the spotlight is put on this inheritance, but it's put on the God who gives us this inheritance. And this inheritance is ours only by the work of the sovereign will of God. Uh, you'll notice in him also we have an, an, an obtained an inheritance, excuse me, verse 11, being predestined being determined beforehand. And notice what moved this predestination according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, he, he piles up the words, speaking about counsel, speaking about will, but they all simply refer to the sovereign will of God, that God from all of eternity determined that we... And that includes the individual you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, would freely receive this spiritual inheritance. So God's will is the ultimate cause for our existence among the people of God, for our existence in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, for our being able to say, we have an inheritance because of the sovereign will of God, because of His counsel, because of His eternal decree of sovereign election. You notice that man's action in verse 11 is completely absent. Now, there is an action of the human individual, 
that is a result of this election, and that is of faith. And we'll get to that in our second point. But we begin with God. And when we as Christians and when we as a Christian church begin with God, it will be transformative. It really will. And how will it be transformative? In this way, our eyes will be taken off of ourselves and our eyes will be taken off of each other and our eyes will be lifted up and we will become, respectfully speaking, fixated upon our God. And everything else will then be put in a different light and in its proper perspective. Do we have concerns about the week gone past? Sure. Do we have anxieties about the week that lies ahead? Absolutely. But they're all put into proper perspective when our eyes become fixated upon the sovereign will of God. We have an inheritance because of the will of God. And nothing outside of him moved him to give us this inheritance. He wasn't compelled by some outside force. He wasn't influenced by some outside consideration. But God, being a God of goodness, being a God of grace, being a God of mercy, looked upon us and said, I want to bless them with a spiritual inheritance. But sometimes you want to do something that you're not able to do. And so the Apostle Paul weaves these two truths together of the sovereign will of God and the sovereign power of God. As, as parents, as spouses, sometimes we say, oh, I wish I could do this for my spouse or for my children, but we, we lack the power, we lack the ability, we lack the resources, we lack the opportunity. But that's never the case with God. God has infinite power. God is able to accomplish, and indeed God does accomplish, everything that He wants to do. So we have an inheritance that includes all of the redemptive blessings because of the will of God, but also because of the power of God. And you notice there in verse 11, again, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Who works. And in our understanding of God, let us never have an understanding that is plagued by a certain passive view of God, that God is idle, that God is somehow detached there in the heavenly realms from earthly activities. Let us never fall into the trap of some deistic conception of God, whereby God put everything in motion and now is completely unattached. Our God works. And He works with His infinite power, with His potency, and nothing can stand and frustrate His purposes. Now, many things try to frustrate His purposes, but then along comes the wisdom of God, and the things that try to frustrate the purposes of God are actually used by God to fulfill His purposes. And this all redounds to His glory. You can think of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lawless hands took the Lord Jesus Christ and crucified Him. But in doing so, the power of God fulfilled the will of God 
the salvation of his people. And so as we reflect upon uh, these two attributes of God, you'll notice just in passing how practical theology really is, how practical theology is, how it impacts the practice of our everyday life to know God rightly and to understand something of His attributes correctly, to know that our God is a God who has a sovereign will which includes our inheritance, and to know that our God has the power to accomplish that which He has determined to accomplish. And so we can say with the Apostle Paul, it is God who works in us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And yet Paul continues, and we continue also then into our second point, the reception of the inheritance. There is, and if you think back to the earthly illustration, which falls short in many ways, but you can think of a former generation preparing an inheritance uh, through hard work usually uh, and through wise uh, stewardliness, they prepare an inheritance that then is received. It, it, it does no well for the individuals unless it is received. And the reception of the inheritance is through the exercise of faith and includes the seal of the Spirit. And here, again, we're just trying to simply follow uh, our text into verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ, and then verse 13 also, though our translation provides the word, is implied, in Him you also trusted. And part of the reason why we structure our sermons this way is perhaps because we're simple-minded, but I want you to always be able to look at the text of Scripture and say, ah, I see where he got that. It's right there. It's not a compliment for the minister, for the congregation to say, I don't know where he got that. And if you ever have an instance where you listen to a sermon that I preach and you look at the text and say, I don't know where he got that, don't ever be afraid and indeed be encouraged to confront me about it. We're not some type of magician. We're not some type of acrobat up here saying, look at how we can pull wonderful things out of nowhere. All we're simply trying to do by the work of the Holy Spirit is open up the Scriptures and expound them. And so this inheritance is received through the exercise of faith. And that's also, and in our worship, there is a covenantal dialogue in all of our elements of worship, but they are woven, or at least they should be woven, around a theme. And that's why we chose the text of our assurance of pardon with that blind man calling out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Because that emphasizes the object of faith. And you notice that the Apostle Paul also emphasizes the object of faith, trusted in Christ. In verse 13, in Him you also trusted. And we need to emphasize this continually, but especially in our day uh, when, when faith by our culture is often described in a very vague way. 
as some type of hope in some bigger narrative, some type of hope in some unidentified deity. And so people might say, well, of course I have faith. Well, the next question is, in what do you have faith? Or perhaps more specifically, in whom do you have faith? And here again, humanism is quick to say, well, I have faith in myself as an individual person, or maybe collectively I have faith, I have confidence in humanity or in society or in the evolutionary process. I have faith perhaps in the government's ability to solve all of the evils and ills of our world, and all of that would be completely futile because it's misdirected expressions of confidence. And if you find yourself hearing these words, and if upon sober analysis you have to acknowledge, yes, I've really put my faith, my hope, my trust in myself, or in humanity, or in some unspecified, unidentified, deistic power, then I lovingly call you to put your faith in Him, in Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, and in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's so plain in the blind man's cry, Son of David. Now what does that title mean? It identifies that he had an understanding of who this person walking by him was. A descendant of David. An inhabitant of the royal throne and indicator of his role as the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer, whom all Israel, although many of them misunderstood it, uh, looked for. And this blind man cries out, Son of David, because he knew something of who Jesus Christ was. Not in perfection, but he knew something of who Jesus Christ was. He knew that this person walking by was just not your ordinary Jew who might have a few bits of money to give to him so that he could get through another day of miserable existence. He knew that this person passing by was just not another routine pharisaical leader who would give him a list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations. No, he knew that this person walking by was the son of David with saving power. And you see that in his cry. What does he say? He doesn't say, Son of David, give me some food. He doesn't say, Son of David, give me some money. Son of David, have mercy on me. And that word mercy, and, and, and I, I wish I had a better understanding of it so that I could communicate to you a better understanding of it, but if we can grasp something of, of mercy, mercy is the soft, tender affections of a person's heart that is stirred by looking upon a miserable condition of another. Mercy is when Jesus Christ looks at the blind man and stops. And with that soft-hearted, and I don't mean that in a weak way, but with the and the King James spoke of bowels of affections, and that's probably really archaic language. But your heart being stirred within you with this tenderness. Place your trust in the tender affections of Jesus Christ. 
in him we trusted. And may I just ask you, when you think about who Jesus Christ is, is that aspect also included? That he's a tender-hearted Savior. That he has a softness of heart, a largeness of heart, a greatness of heart to all who call upon him in truth. Of course, we must be balanced in our theology concerning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, we must emphasize Christ's power and his supremacy and his majesty and his coming to judge the living and the dead. But that must be balanced by being fully in line with Scripture. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And when faith grasps hold of this word, notice verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed. And there again, the, the words of our assurance of pardon. The man was blind. By his own sense of sight, he remained ignorant of who this person passing him by was, but he heard. And you can find this same concept woven throughout many a narrative in the accounts of the gospel, that an individual who is in a miserable condition hears about Jesus Christ, and then they go to him. And that's the way the gospel works. The gospel message is proclaimed, behold the son of David, the Savior. And then according to the eternal will of God, by the sovereign power of God, the hearts of the people of God are stirred and moved to exercise faith. And that faith embraces the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by embracing the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they then become a receptor of the inheritance that has been prepared for them from all of eternity. And now just in passing to cover our basis, of course, this exercise of faith is one of the included benefits of the inheritance, as is then the seal of the Spirit. We go back to our text in verse 14, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Uh, and much ink has been spilt over this phrase. What does this exactly mean? We're not going to be able to plumb the depths, but let us say a few things about what the seal of the Spirit is. First of all, in the historic context, a seal is a stamp of ownership placed on an object. A, a stamp of ownership that signifies, I am in possession of this. We, we might and of course, it's not historically completely in line, but we might make a comparison if you have a title to a vehicle. The title, if it's in your possession, proves that you are the owner of that vehicle. And so the Holy Spirit is the seal in that the Holy Spirit himself, and therefore also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, come to, in a redemptive way, indwell the Christian. Of course, producing the faith, but also then confirming by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that we are those who have received the inheritance. 
And and this truth is also plainly stated in Scripture, uh, that the Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, And here, of course, we deal with spiritual realities, but spiritual realities that we ought to be aware of, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now, you could say, generally speaking, the Holy Spirit gives life to everything, but in a unique way, the Holy Spirit resides within the person of the Christian, and let us with humble gratitude recognize this as we go through the days of our lives. That whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever we do, wherever we go, we do so as those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit So let us take great care that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit who resides within us. Because He resides within us as a seal of ownership. And what the Holy Spirit is described of is also indicated in verse 14, the guarantee, the guarantee or the deposit or the earnest. Now, economically, we were always encouraged growing up Uh, to pay cash on the barrel, so to speak. But sometimes you don't have enough cash, maybe to to purchase what you need. Uh, And so you go and you take out a loan, but you make a down payment. And, And that's something of this concept also. The Spirit is the down payment of our redemption. Not, of course, that the Lord lacks anything, Not as if God could not fully accomplish redemption, banish any thought of that from your mind, but that this is the first part put down upon our redemption, the Holy Spirit. That guarantees the full consummation of our redemption. Because if God has put down the Holy Spirit within our heart, we can be assured that then there will be the full accomplishment of our redemption, as it refers there in verse 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. And now, as that Holy Spirit resides within us, that is the seal, but also then the evidence or the impact of the Holy Spirit residing within us. And so the Christian who believes is also the Christian who is gradually transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, beginning to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. And so I just want to ask you this morning, and don't think about the person behind you, in front of you, or next to you, but you. Is there evidence of the influence of the Holy Spirit that you have love, that you have joy, that you have peace. Because if you don't, it is impossible to praise God. But if you do, it's unavoidable to praise God. Show me a person who does not have love, joy, and peace, and I will show you a person who will not praise God. But show me a person who is characterized by Christian love, joy, and peace, and I will show you a person who must praise God. And and that's the purpose of the inheritance. The phrase there at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. It's echoed, verse 12, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. 
And then our third point, I just want to try to make clear to us that, yes, our salvation includes the salvation of our soul from the torments of eternal hell. But that's not the ultimate purpose for our redemption. The ultimate purpose for our redemption, the ultimate purpose for our salvation is that we would be objects who praise God for His will, for His power, for His mercy. And this we see also in our text assuring us pardon. What did the blind man do when his sight was restored? That which he had to do, praise the one who had restored his sight. And what did the people who looked upon that transformative event do? They also praised God. The praise of His glory, the expression of the wonderful realities of the glory of God seen in His sovereign will, seen in His sovereign power, seen in His sovereign salvation. This, if we can say it this way, should be the the heartbeat, the pulse of the Christian congregation. You know, if you were to walk into uh, an, an unknown assembly uh, of people who called themselves Christians, and if you wanted to know something about whether their theology was God-centered or man-centered, all you have to do is listen to them sing. And if their song is all about themselves, man-centered theology. If they don't sing, well, just cold, dead formalism. But if their songs have a certain vibrancy about it, saying in essence, praise God from whom all blessings flow, you know that here is a people who realize the reason for their existence and the reason for their salvation and the reason for their redemption. And sadly, there are far too many of us who think even though we might not say it, we think that God exists for us rather than knowing that we exist for God. And I know that there are some incredible complexities within life, but you take an individual who is angry with God, who is disappointed in God, who is frustrated with God, and at the heart of that person's understanding is a misconception. God doesn't exist for you. You exist for God. And as a Christian, you exist for the praise of God. And so may I say it bluntly that all of us, at some level or another, need to think less of ourselves and more of our God. Think of what John the Baptist said. He has a somewhat successful ministry going on. But then the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And he says, concerning himself and his ministry, I must decrease. He, that is Jesus Christ, must increase. Have we gotten our own selves in the way of the praise, the glory of our God? Are you not able to sing with joy in your heart because you're so concerned about yourself? 
and all of the perceived injustices that God has served you in life, then I want to lovingly remind you, in Him, you have an inheritance. So praise Him. This is why we have been created. This is why we have been redeemed. This should be our purpose now in life. And sometimes, I don't spend too much time anymore, but uh, you'll read some speculation about what heaven will be like and you know, how much of this earth's material possessions will enter into the new heaven and the new earth. And I say I don't read too much of it anymore because there's really no profit to it. This I know about heaven. And I know it only on the basis of Holy Scripture. That in heaven, the redeemed will be praising God forevermore. And on earth, the redeemed should be praising God. Because for this we have been redeemed. Amen.